0: This podcast brought to you by Base leaders in waterproof bond coatings for the swimming pool and
1: construction industry. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Pool Magazine Podcast. Today I'm going to be chatting with Bob Blanda of Milbergen Pools, an award-winning pool builder servicing Brooklyn and Manhattan. It's a pleasure to have you with us on the show today.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: You know, Bob, as a premier builder, service in Manhattan, you're frequently building pools where nobody in their right mind even wants to park a car, never mind build a pool. I mean, can you take us through that process, Bob? I mean, how the heck do you manage to build pools in one of the busiest and congested areas of the country?
0: So the first problem, of course, we have is that there's no parking. And um, even if there is parking allowed on that street, there's a car in every spot. Mm -hmm. So, staging. Staging a job probably means sending a truck in with at least one additional person that's going to work on the job. And that one person is either going to sit in the truck in like a spot where there's a, where there's a pump, or they're going to be circling until they can find the spot. Like a it's chauffeur here.
1: driver, right?
0: <laughs> Basically a chauffeur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once in a while, you're lucky enough to get to a spot where two or three blocks away, you can park the vehicle. But of course, you know what it's like then when you need something suddenly for a job and you have it in the truck, you have to schlep three blocks to go get it and come back. Right. So it's, it's definitely a difficult as far as that goes. Um, traveling to and from the city or traveling around the block in the city could be at least an hour or two additional to what the normal day is because if there's traffic, you can sit there for an hour and a half just to go around the block. So you probably only get six hours out of a day, even though your men left at 6.30 in the morning and leave the city at 4.30 or 5 o'clock. Another thing is, depending on the type of job it is, a lot of the jobs shut early. So even though you guys might want to stay later, they close the job down and you just have to leave. So you have to calculate all this in um, to your costs. Now they're adding um, congestion pricing. They're considering adding it. In fact, I think it's pretty close to getting put through. We're be charged like $30, $40 a day per vehicle to just go into the city on wow. top of the gas tolls and every other expense. So the, the travel part of it is one thing. Of course, um, all the rules that go on everywhere else are enhanced in Manhattan, the OSHA, the having the 30 the OSHA 30, having your hot hats, having all your proper gear, um, walking into jobs, having to sign in, having to send it to safety meetings. Right. Um, some of the jobs are so secure they're using uh, retina to have you wow. walk in and out. You know what I'm saying? Even if it's a high-end residential, there's probably a security guard sitting at a desk in the hall of the house that you're walking in right. while the house is being renovated. So there's a lot of difficulties to making things happen. And of course, working with other trades, because if you're working in a job like that, it's normally in the middle of a construction of the house or the building, depending what it is. So you're contending with use of the elevator, other people in your way, um, other trades with materials in your way. So it's not like you're alone there. You're not given the exclusive to be the only person working. So you add all these things together, it becomes a lot more complicated. Trying to get cement. Delivered in the city yeah. means you need to get four, five parking spots clear. So right. what we'll do is we'll wait until that they have alternate side of the street parking, and this is used for the street sweepers to come in and sweep the street. The machine comes down the block, sweeps right. the street, the automatic street. So maybe it's like from ten to eleven or ten to twelve on a Friday. Everybody has to move all their cars from those spots to the other side. And that, ha- that has to be left open so the street sweeper can come in. That's the day we'll schedule cement. Wow. We'll be there sitting, waiting an hour before everybody to move their cars. The street sweeper will come and we'll shove our trucks right in the spot and take all those spots. So we only can really have maybe one day a week that we can pour cement. I mean, otherwise you go through the whole process of trying to get the street closed, having people with flags on the other end. It's a big deal. So um,
1: it's a whole logistics nightmare to even plan when you're going to do these things. I mean, your schedule must be a real ace, man.
0: Yeah. yeah. Kudos to my guys. That's for sure. You know, we're used to it. So we know how to work around it. We know the pitfalls, we know what it is. And um, in a way it's nice because the, the projects that you build there, I mean, everybody can build a nice pool, but the surround of the pool enhances the project. So I mean, you could sit there and take a picture of a project that's in La Jolla hanging off a cliff right. over the water. And if you cut the pool out and it was a white piece of blank paper behind it that you pasted that pool on, it wouldn't be quite as pretty as when you put the backdrop. Mm-hmm. So in Manhattan, um, somebody that's spending 20, $25 million on that house, right? all the materials that are being used outside of me but to enhance the room are exclusive stuff which makes the pool picture right the picture when you see the finished picture the pool sitting in a room with the exotic wood and the doors and the glass and all the money that was spent in the room because the client can afford much more expensive product right it's exclusive or much more beautiful project right so This is a nice thing about it. When they're finally finished and they they drag on for three or four years because you're building a pool in the house, you're starting it at the beginning when the house is raw and everything is foundations and everything is stripped and you're finishing it along the way as they're finishing the house. So you're in at the beginning and you're finishing it two, three, four weeks before they move into the house.
1: You build a lot of indoor pools and rooftop pools and commercial pools. I mean, frequently you're collaborating with architects on these jobs. I mean, Mill the pool builder of choice for these types of jobs in New York City. That reputation took a long time to establish. You know, take us on that journey, Bob. Tell us about it.
0: So it started with bringing my trucks into the city to do pool service, for cleanings and what have you. My trucks are box trucks and they're lettered with photos and logos and all that stuff. So driving them up and down through the city gave me a little bit of exposure. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we found that architects were starting to get interests. Their clients were getting interested in swimming pools. And they would call us up and ask us if they want an in-ground pool. And I would go out and sit down with them and talk to them about building a pool. And I would find that I'm not going to the customer. I'm going to an architectural office. So here I am now, parking my car, I'm walking into a building in Madison Avenue, for example, going up on the 20th floor, I'm walking into an architectural firm, and they'll shuttle me into a a conference room and sit me down, hand me a bottle of water, offer me a coffee, and all of a sudden, 12 different people will come in with pads, and they're questioning me about this. So I come to realize that I'm not dealing with the end user, and I'm not really selling this person. This Mm -hmm. person is not making a decision most of the time. Right. What they're doing is they're doing the designs for this project. It's a hundred page design and the pool is three pages of it and they need information. So it didn't take long to realize that if I didn't start to find a way to push a little bit, all I would be would become somebody as a source Now I'm coming to teach you what to do and leave. I'm leaving with no money.
1: Right. You don't want to just be somebody's hands. Right. Right.
0: Sure. I mean, i I will get the recommendation by that firm for thanking me for doing this, but that wasn't enough. So we turned around and said, you know, we want to be a consultant. So we're more than willing to give you a little bit of information. I mean, I have to meet and greet and make people comfortable that I'm capable and knowledgeable and what have you. But at one point I have to say to them, you know, uh, we provide, we're a construction company. We can build that pool. We can go whatever extreme you want from one side to the other, build the pool and leave or, or do more for you. But at one point, we we want to either one have a contract, or two we want to be a consultant, which will offer you consulting fee you know service, twelve hours for x amount of dollars blah blah blah, and that will be um, we'll walk you through the process and help you get your plans where you need to be. We're going to help you with submittals. We're going to help you with electrical requirements. We're going to help you with HAV. We're going to talk about um, dehumidification. We're going to help you with all the questions that you guys need to know to complete the plans and the designs with the intent that you're going to give us the job. And if so, then we'll credit you something towards this consulting fee. Right. And it seemed to have worked. Seemed to have worked. So between that side and getting calls from general contractors that just see us, we slowly, but surely started to build pools in the city. And then we started to get more and more service in the city. So as we're building them, we're 15 minutes away from the city. So we can get a service truck in, in 15 minutes, which is pretty good. Most people, if they have to travel two hours, it's not so desirable. So there isn't so many companies that want to come into the city to do service. And that's really where it went. And we we love working in the city, and we hate working in the city all at the same time. It's a a love-hate relationship. But... uh, (laughs)
1: Well, it what's, it like, more what's, what's it like building these types of pools, Bob? I mean, every one of your clients is a multi-millionaire. Better, I mean, I can imagine it's pretty stressful working for the one percenters in Manhattan that want a pool.
0: Well, the weird thing about it is, at least for the first ninety percent of the project, I may not meet the one percenter mm-hmm. because if you're a one percenter, you have a team of people working right. for you. So I might be dealing with the general contractor. I might be dealing with the architect. And I probably will be dealing with a designer or two designers, depending like that. So at one point when it's finally turned over, if it's a residential house, I might have access to the client if he's willing to be that person. He also might be a person that's not there very much hiring a management company to manage the house. Right. And that means they're giving them a checkbook and they're paying their electric, the gas, the this, the that. They're paying their cleaning services. And I'm coming back and maintain that pool and still not meeting the customer
1: so I mean it's like uh you're you're making this uh beautiful pool I mean it's uh exclusive design, and it may be even years before you actually meet the client you're working for or if if you even get I have a couple I've still never met yeah it must be pretty- re- rewarding though to know that you had a role in that in that project though you know
0: yes, it is it is. Yeah. It's a nice feeling when you when you walk through um, some of these things. And I mean, at the beginning, I used to bring my wife to come see some of the jobs, and we would be maybe out for lunch or something in the city. I'd have to make a stop. I'd say, "Why don't you come and walk in?" Now I found it's even best not to even show anybody some of these things because then, listen, then I come home and she wants to. Renovate the house. You
1: know, so. <laughs> it just gives her ideas. Huh? <laughs> Are there any uh, new projects you're working on, Bob, that you want to give us a kind of sneak preview about? Uh, 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 that, that brownstone pool that you were talking about.
0: So we're just finishing. Pretty much it's finished at this point. I think the house is just about ready to move in. It's a small pool. It's a cocktail pool, maybe a 12 by 20. It's a, a simple rectangle. Um, it, was, it was a long time in the making because... Number one, they had to get permission from the neighbor. So this is a house that's jutting to another house. So there's a shared foundation between these two houses, right? And they had to get permission from the neighbor to excavate in the basement. Even though we're excavating only about six feet, they would have to underpin the foundation to bring it down at least a couple of feet lower than our pool so that there's no movement and there's no undermining under their foundation. And in order to do that, there was negotiations between the general contractor and a lawyer and the neighbor. And the neighbor ended up extracting a sizable, five-digit amount of money from them to give them permission to build a pool in the house next door, which was my client. On top of that, they had to put a special type of unit on the foundation that measured movement so that they could you know, make sure that there was no movement in their foundation during this construction so the pool started out being above the ground in the basement it was going to be a plunge pool that was going to be like four by six and then i said let's put a spa next to it let's make it five by six let's put a spa next to it that's five by eight you'll have two bodies of water next to each other rectangular and i can cover it with a motorized cover and you're gonna i said you're gonna walk up four sets of steps in a basement that's only like 10 feet when you're going over the top you're like pretty close to the ceiling so right. it wasn't that desirable but this is what they originally had come up with and they went back and forth and i said this is not the, the epitome of what you would like and um through some diligence on the general contractor's part it was able to convince the neighbor to allow them to dig and they escalated it down they did all this uh, underpinning they built a concrete vault for us and we ended up building like a 12 by 20, so the client got a decent-sized pool. And then he brought in a uh, famous tile guy from Italy to tile the whole inside of it. He did a glass wall. So this is not a big basement. This is maybe a 30 or a 26 foot wide basement. So picture a 20 foot pool with a glass in front of it, maybe about three or four foot walkway, and then the thickness of a staircase going up. So it's a relatively small basement. This one project. Right but um just finishing it and coming out very nice very happy they put a in-floor cleaning system in it they put a swim stream so that he could swim against it of course led lighting motorized cover they put um ozone ultraviolet which is the uh, sanitizer of choice right now a much more healthier alternative right than the chlorine and the, some of the chlorine systems that they're using we got client down to 5% chlorine. And they had a carpenter come in and do a beautiful teak wood ceiling in this room and a really nice stone wall along the rectangular wall above the pool. So it's a pretty picture. There's no doubt about it. And um, although it's not this expansive 70-foot pool, which we do a lot of uptown, um, I think it works for him. And uh, he's very happy.
1: That was also in New York, right?
0: Yes, that was in the city.
1: The city was one of the hardest hit at the outset of COVID. I mean, what was it like for Millburg and Pools during that time?
0: Well, we were fortunate that the association worked really hard and was able to get the swimming pool business to be essential. So because we provide sanitizing products, chlorines and what have you, um, we were able to become essential. And being essential, we were able to work. Now, what was it like at the beginning? Well, with all the rules and with everybody, we had to put one guy in a truck We had to put multiple trucks to send them to to locations. And um, at the beginning, it was was cold. If you remember, this hit like in February. So what we did was we just went from job to job to job and installed filter systems. All the jobs that were sitting like in progress, we sent one guy with with a set of equipment to each job, which slowly but surely over like the last, those two months, that was the really intense part of COVID. We got all our pools moving a little bit along the way. Getting right. them ready for finishes, and then finally, when it softened up a little bit and the spring came, we were able to finish them. But uh, COVID created a lot of um, difficulties. Everybody was nervous, and there was you know fear. Customers were scared, and the um, workers were scared. I mean, but Nobody wanted to be five people in a truck or four people in a truck anymore. So it certainly was more complicated. But um, you know, I always say in the marine in the uh, pool business, you have to be a marine. You have to be able to overcome, adapt. So we're constantly changing and we, we made it work. And now it's, now everybody is vaccinated and at least, you know, it's within reason. But um, during the COVID process, even when I was going to residential clients to sell pools, um, you know, you'd go to the, you'd have an appointment, you'd go to the door. I would call them on my phone instead of ringing the bell on a residential house. And they would answer the phone and they would like, okay, I'll meet you in the back. And I they, you have your mask on. They have their mask on. They're like 20 feet away from you. where they're telling you about the pool. And I'm measuring the whole yard out. I'm getting my, my drawings together on a piece of paper so I know what I'm working with. And then normally I would go in the house, sit down in the kitchen, open up a laptop, start to show them some pictures, start to show them accessories, talk to them a little bit about pros and cons of different type of pools and What maybe works for them, you know, there is no better or worse pool. There's different styles of construction, and there's what fits for you. And everybody's story is different. And it's not about money and whether the house is is extremely expensive or not. You know, it's it's about what works for you. There are people that have extreme amounts of money and yet want something very simple. Mm -hmm. Now there are people that you walk in that you say, why are they even calling me? The house needs work. They should be putting work on their porch. They should be fixing their landscaping. Mm -hmm. And instead they're thinking of spending money on a new thing. Mm -hmm. Do you know what? You can't sit and and pre-qualify. You can't sit and make decisions. You never know who that, who that person is or what that person is. Be wearing the the scaggiest looking type of attire. And he's a billionaire. So, I mean, you just treat everybody the same. Yeah. And, uh, Yes, I used to be able to go inside the house and sit down with them in the kitchen and present and do the whole thing. And then because of COVID, it became, you know what? I'm gonna take this information back to my house, my office. I'm gonna make a design and I'm gonna come back to you on a Zoom. We're gonna do a presentation on a Zoom and I'm gonna show you what I came up with. I'm gonna explain the same presentation I would do for two hours in your kitchen. I'm gonna do over a Zoom. And I mean, it was problematic. I mean, sometimes, Customers don't have good internet. you know, I'm trying to run a AutoCAD program that takes a lot of memory and show them the design live and it's slow because it's going through a VPN, right. through a network, you know, it's one thing for me and you to talk on a Zoom, it's another thing for me to run a really um, memory responsive software program on a Zoom. Right,
1: yeah. No, I can, I can imagine that's pretty challenging. I mean, doing it as a live presentation in somebody's living room is, is a whole different act though, than doing it in, in a zoom. I mean, you don't have that per- personal connection that comes with you actually being in the living room, you know?
0: Yeah. You, you know, if, if, to be honest with you, listen, I, I'm, I'm a pool builder. I'm a designer. I'm the owner. I'm, I'm a salesman. I have a lot of hats. Right. But, I don't consider it really a salesman. I don't go in there. I'm not looking to put a contract in front of you and shove it under your nose. This is not the type of sale. It's not selling a car or it's not selling a dishwasher. Um, It's something that's going to take three or four or five meetings. And to be honest with you, most of the best meetings are going to be more me and you bonding and talking than it is you asking me about the horsepower of a pump. You know what I'm saying? When it goes... When it goes technical, it's usually not as good a meeting for me as when it's more like broad strokes. What are you looking for? What are you, what's your wish list? Where are we going? We can get down to like how many wires you need to make this work at the end of the discussion. But I have to make a, a connection with you. I have to feel comfortable with you. You're interviewing me to see whether or not you're comfortable to work with me. I'm interviewing you too to see whether or not I'm comfortable working with you because it's definitely a two-way street. We're going to be together for two months, three months, five months, two years, three years, whatever it is, however long the process takes. And it's important that I, you know, I'm comfortable and that you're comfortable. We have to both be comfortable. I'm all about managing expectations. I want to be as transparent as possible. I want them to understand that the world isn't perfect. We're going to do the best we can. We're gonna communicate as much as possible to keep you in the loop so you know what's going on. But look, supply chains, delays, material costs go up. A lot of things change. And what's different about it now than it was before COVID is, at least people are understanding. You know, when you say to them, we're having these issues, it's not just us. It's everything they're touching that they're having issues with. If they're in the middle of having a house renovated or built, they're hearing it everywhere from the cola distributor from their faucets to their electrician. I mean, everyone is telling them. So it's believable. And people are a lot more tolerant. And, and I, I feel for them because they're people budget. You know, you talk to people when they're, they're going to renovate or build a house and they put a budget together, whatever the number is. And usually it doesn't come in at that budget. Most of the time you'll hear at the end, oh my God, I'm over budget. You know, Maybe they chose nicer stuff. They didn't realize they got into nicer materials, nicer tile, nicer faucets, nicer fixtures, all these things. All of a sudden their budget's higher, but their budget's a lot higher right now. If you're in the middle of building a house out of nowhere and this COVID hit, you just got hit with 40% more than what you thought.
1: Everything went up. How have you been dealing with all the ongoing shortages and delays? How's it impacted your ability to keep these deadlines on track and forecast for future growth, Bob?
0: So we're trying to, number one, say to the clients that we want to change the payment schedule around a little bit so that if, if you can do it and you have space, we'd like to order the equipment when we make our contract, ship you the equipment, and put the equipment on your, in your place, in storage, in your garage, and what have you. Even if we're not starting the job yet, Sooner we get the equipment and get it to you, number one, we're holding a price because prices are fluctuating. We can place an order for equipment and they give us a PL with a price, but they also say to us, that's fine, except when you get it, then you'll get the real price. Right. So, it's like, so if I'm ordering something and I'm not putting that, if I'm starting a job and I'm not putting the equipment in for a year and a half, I'm going to get three increases. between
1: well, now that's and That now. disparity that makes jobs go upside down.
0: Yeah, of course. You can end up not making money on a job if you don't price right. it right. So right. now we've added into our contract that um, if there are, if there is delays over a certain amount of time and there are price increases, we will prove to you the cost of the equipment when we make the contract because we, we quote it and hold that quote from our vendor and staple it to the paperwork in our folder. And then when we go to buy it, if there's a difference, a parity, then we're going to say to you, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to pick up another six percent four percent seven percent whatever it may be so we're trying to protect ourselves we're also trying to tell our clients ahead of time these are the things you can do to to try to protect yourself from an increase if you're willing to pay for the equipment ahead of time even though we're not there then we'll drop ship the stuff to you and you'll have it right and you'll unlock the price
1: i mean you know sometimes it works Well, there's a lot of guys that are still buying all the equipment they can get their hands on and shoring up for another rough season ahead. I mean, if you had a crystal ball in front of you, Bob, and you had to predict what's going to happen in the next few years, which way are you going? I mean, do you think we peaked as far as demand or is it just going to get worse before it gets better?
0: Well, realize something. Last year was a perfect storm. We had COVID and we had a freeze in Texas, which was unheard of that damaged a thousand sets of equipment. And it happened just about a month before the season started. So the stress that was put on the manufacturers and the amount of product that was produced could not meet the demand. And of course, Texas wanted the product and they paid more money for the product. And because of that, they took sets and sets of equipment on us. That, um, that we expected to see last year. So between that and the supply chain shortages and the people that were hoarding, it was a tough year. But I expect a little better this year, but I think we're gonna go through the same thing. So I know the manufacturers are trying to allocate. So they're not just, you know, they're not like if you buy like, like my chemical, my BioGuard company, for example, that sells me my chlorine. I can't buy more chlorine than I bought last year. They know what I bought. They're allocating that much. I can place an order for five times. I'm not getting it. There's no doubt. They've already said to me, you'll get what you had last year. Can't tell you when, but you'll get it. But you can't have more. So at least they're trying to control it. Now, with the manufacturers, when they send product direct to us through buying groups, so... Only some people are in buying groups. People that are in buying groups can buy the product and get the product direct. But if you're buying through distribution, distribution is the wild west. Anything can happen. Somebody comes in and wants to buy 40 systems and the stuff shows up. And the counter person does not say, wait a minute, you usually use 10 sets. I'm only giving you 10. And he gives him 30. Then the next guy coming in is going to be short.
1: Yeah, they're basing that viability of having product based off of whether the guy at the counter, they have a good relationship with that guy or not. And if they're ordering online, odds are they don't have that kind of relationship established anyway, you know. So, I mean is it more advantageous for guys to take advantage of buying groups like Carecraft and and, and those kind of organizations?
0: Well, it's definitely advantageous if you have the ability to do it. Remember, it's also um, by location. So, I mean, like if somebody has an area, that's it. They won't add 10 people into the same area. There's there's certain protected areas as part of the group. So the group can't just triple in size. It's not just, Anybody that wants to join it, just join it, right. you know, because there are people and members that are sitting in certain geographic locations that won't allow another member.
1: Well, I mean, you you know the ins and outs of how all this works. I mean, you're on the board of directors for the PHTA and you've been heavily involved with Nespa. And what do you think the unique challenges are in our industry as far as education is concerned? I mean, the industry has been pretty much, you know, learn as you go. What are folks like PHTA and Nespa and other organizations doing to change all that?
0: So as far as education, there's a lot of unique challenges, but I'll address education first. Education has always been a live delivered product. Nespa has the Atlantic City Show, and we deliver probably 200 seminars during a three-day session. And it brings 11,000 people to that show. So people like to sit in and get taught by seasoned veterans and by experts. When COVID hit, PHTA was sitting with a whole bunch of live programs and a couple of things that were online. And we had to scramble and kudos to Sabina and the team that they took 90% and that it's working to be 100% of all the products and offerings that we have. And they had them put to online programs and not just something where you sit and you just read. I mean, a lot of them are interact with, you know, like depending on your answer might be pop-ups, there might be videos. It's definitely not boring reading a powerpoint by yourself anymore so when we did that we found that surprisingly they liked it and then they realized that they could take it they could split it up so you could take like a, a six hour course over four days and you could take it at seven o'clock at night till 11 and then come back tomorrow take it at nine in the morning till 10. it was no longer structured where you had to tie your guys up take them off the streets working to sit them in a location, pay for a hotel room. And not only the money for the course, the the lodging, and what have you, but the loss of the week of work, which nobody could spare. So we found on the PHDA side that it's much better for us that way. All our offerings are on there. But we still have live offerings for people that want them. So we have the Genesis program and all the different tiers that we've just created um, going up that program. And there'll still be live things being offered at all the shows but we're driving towards a process where it won't just be certification is a big word i mean it's a a word in certification licensing are two big words and certification is very important when you talk to somebody about anything a certified mri technician is certified certification means something in our world Mm -hmm. so we we're now driving towards a new process, which will be to certify a company, not just like right now, like I'm a certified money professional, I'm a certified service professional, I'm a certified pool operator. Okay, but Milbergen Pools does not carry any certification. Bob Blanda carries the certification, Got right? It. But if we can make Milbergen Pools a certified company then it will be that it has to have certified retail operatives, certified service operatives, certified building operatives, certified business members. So like a suite of programs and each one will be tailored to the company and the size, but the company will have a certification, not just one person carrying a certification, which. So this is the direction we're going. They're all customizable. So education is in flux, and it just keeps changing. And and, um, the problem we have, and I'll delve outside of education for a second, the problem we have is our our industry is sort of aging out. Mm -hmm. Many of the people that are involved in the association, the volunteering, and the ownership of these companies are 55, 60, 65, 70. They've been very um, successful. They bought property that they operate out of and have paid these properties off over the 20, 30 years of their uh, professional lifetime. And now they're sitting and trying to figure out how to either transfer this to dollars and cents and get out or to turn it over to a family member and how to make that work, or to maybe turn it over to the workers like an ESOP type of thing where they buy it. doesn't seem like the younger generation has the same drive.
1: Right, right. Succession plan. Right, yeah. it's a big problem in the industry, Bob. I'm mean, actually I was talking with uh, with Joe Vasallo over at Paragon Pools. All right, about what the succession plan was for handing over his business, and he's actually quite fortunate in, in the respect that you know Joe Jr has a very big interest in carrying that torch, you know, and um, other guys like Chuck Bauman. All right. He's got, he's got Nico. Like there's some guys who've got a succession plan in place. And then there's other guys who are just, you know, trying to figure out what's the next step and talking about that and maybe educating the industry on what steps you should put in place. I mean, if you really want your company to be able to to thrive after you plan on stepping down, I think is a great conversation for the industry to hear.
0: We that is so. I meet twice a year with Carecraft, one of the buying groups, and um, one of the meetings is more of a buying process and uh, a little bit of education. And the other meeting is a much smaller meeting, maybe about 200 members show up, and it's just two days of strategy. And that's we spent the whole day on that. So, I'm uh-huh. sitting with 100 people in a room, and, and we talked about and discussed you know the pros and cons of how it went. And of course, the 100 people that are in the room at a location, like you know a, a travel location somewhere, so it's a little vacationy thing too, are the owners. The owners are there, right? The people that are coming from the company are the owners. So who's sitting in the room are most of the people that are sitting there trying to figure out the succession plan. Um, I brought my son and my daughter with me, but out of the group of 150, 90% did not bring the people that they were considering as part of their succession. And we mm-hmm. talked about the next time we meet to bring that next group, to include them, right. to let them know and feel that, number one, we're not sitting and holding this company like, like, like the old days where you know you, your parents had the money in the bank and the passbook and they didn't tell you about what they had. And they, you found out when, when the time came that it was handed to you at the end. Right. Now it's more of a, smarter thing to sit and discuss your finances while you're still alive and number one able to help your kids while they need it not when you're gone and to be able to enjoy helping them along the way same thing if you include them in the conversation you talk about the fact that you're going to own this company you're going to have to do the things that i do you're going to get the benefits of it but you're going to have to take care of us so that we can live the life that we deserve as we're retiring, that we put all this time in for. But at the same token, this is what you're looking at, the possibility of what your lifestyle can be like. But listen, we spent 30 years doing this. It didn't come easy. A lot of sacrifices. You're getting way better of an opportunity because we're handing you something that's operating. But it doesn't mean that if you don't put as much time and heart and soul into it, it can go south.
1: Yeah. There's I mean, no guarantee it's it's that are you on the job site for a few years, yeah. you know, they go to all the meetings, they uh they get in the trenches with you and understand what it is to operate and own a business, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's gotten to the point now where although I'm not sitting in the office, my daughter who's running the store and the service department is, and my son who's a little bit younger, he's 25, my daughter's 31. Um, my son is coming in a little bit into play now. But so I'm my, my role at the moment is to go from my house to job sites or to sales meetings to sit and make presentations or to make contact and to sit price and estimate jobs and communicate with the customers before we have them or during, whereas the office is sitting it's a stagnant spot sitting at a desk all day at eight to four type of thing, sitting in the spots. But but I'm finding that I'm, I'll go do my thing and maybe at two o'clock I'm done, I'll turn around and come home. I'll be home at 2.30. But coming home at 2.30, I'm opening up that laptop on my lap and I'm answering emails, I'm dealing with finances, I'm doing things to that nature. And if for some reason I come home, like a day like last night, for example, I came home and we had to go right out to this chapter event. And when I got home, it was 12 o'clock. So in reality, I didn't work. I didn't answer messages. I didn't answer emails yesterday. You can wake up sometimes in the middle of the night with like that thing in your brain running the rat on the treadmill on your head, almost like guilt that you didn't work. And I'll be downstairs at two, three in the morning on my laptop getting work done. I'll work from two to six, let's say. When nobody's around in my house, everybody's sleeping, and those four hours, I'll get so much stuff done. And the funny thing is, I'll shoot emails out to people at three thirty in the morning, and they'll answer me at three thirty.
1: Those are those same self-starters that are. They're all.
0: Yeah. Right. So whether or not my kids are ready to take on this "you work all the time except when you sleep" mentality, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of benefits. You know, we we very fortunate our industry is prosperous but not everybody is willing to you know a lot of some people just want to go home and have no responsibility until the next day
1: well yeah there's a lot a, of people, people who are uh, you know there's a question of the whole generation that's coming you know that's uh, this new generation of uh, entitlement you know, where everything's handed to you and you're going to be vice president of the company the day you show up on the job, you know? I mean, not a lot of people want to wait. And unfortunately, the work etiquette is, you know, it's not the same as it is every generation. The greatest generation, you know, had the best work etiquette of all time, you know?
0: Because they didn't have anything. You know. And they went to war and they fought for the country and they they had like a pride. So it's a different type of pride. I mean, we have pride. We go and we see a pool, it's finished and you get proud of what you did. But um, I'm certainly not the same as my father, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a great conversation, Bob. I mean, uh, honestly, you know, um, I'd just like to wrap up by thanking you for uh, joining us on the Pool Magazine podcast today. I mean, it was great having you on the show and a lot of critical and valuable insights, man. I really appreciate it.
0: Pleasure.
1: That's all the time we have today. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Base Creek, the leaders in waterproof bond codes for the swimming pool industry. Please make sure to subscribe and we look forward to catching you next time on another episode of Pool Magazine Podcast.